0: You're listening to River Church Podcast. To learn more about River Church or to support us financially, please visit us online at rivercolumbia.com. We hope that you enjoy this week's message. Revelation 3, um, I hope you guys really have gotten a, the Holy Spirit has really like opened your eyes to more of the the, the glory of Jesus, like you know, that little vision that was being prophesied the first couple of weeks about like this panoramic view or a greater view of Jesus and his kingdom. I hope your head's been lifted up as we've walked through some of these letters. Um, if you've missed one of these weeks, I really want to like probably the only one of the only reasons we have a podcast is so that you, if you're you know, hanging out with the kids or, you know, you have something going on one week and can't stay in the loop that you can go back and listen. So make sure you go back and listen to each one of these weeks, because I really do believe it's going to be significant to us as a family. This is one of the most beautiful things about the people of God is that like we we move together as one. Um, Paul talks about it in First Corinthians as like if one suffers, we all suffer uh, if one is essentially in a great place, we're all in that great place with that person or in this place of rejoicing with them. Um, and I hope your view has been been again lifted in some kind of way of Christ and his kingdom. And I, this letter is a fitting end. I don't know if Jesus meant to have this be read as the seventh letter, but we're going to take it as it be the seventh letter because it's in our scriptures. But it is a fitting end to all of these letters. Um, and so let's read this again into the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, uh, the beginning of the creation of God. I don't know if you noticed that, uh, a couple times you maybe have read it before, but that is an incredibly important statement that Jesus He's the amen. And the true, the faithful witness, he's the beginning of the creation of God. Um, Colossians 1:15 talks about basically says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. A simple way to put this is that as a result of his resurrection, so Christ was buried and then rose from the dead as a result of his resurrection. And then beginning with the revealing of the sons and daughters, the old has passed away and the new has come. What is the old? The old is the old creation that was subject to decay, subject to sin. Sin entered the world. It ruled over this old creation. Christ, like Noah, you guys are familiar with the story of Noah, right? Um, not Noah, Sc- Scott Lamero, Noah. Noah. Um, I just honestly thought about that. I wasn't even trying to make a joke. I just thought, like, you guys familiar with the story of Noah? I just like, thought about Noah running around in the backpack there. Um, the story of Noah being that Noah was instructed by God to make an ark, make a, uh, a huge boat, essentially, to get to preserve some of humanity. It was actually eight souls, which is wild. That doesn't sound like quite a big work, but eight souls. And that picture is a good picture. It's like the setup for the rest of the scriptures of Noah as a type of Christ, as the saving work of Jesus. He comes in, he rescues people from under the power of sin and brings them into a new creation. And so in the story of Noah, what you had was Noah brings them into this little ark, this place, and then sends out a, when the flood is over. And this is super paraphrased, and gosh, it would be so much fun and probably very much needed, very important to walk through the story of Noah, the covenant that God made with Noah. But essentially, at the end of that covenant that God makes with Noah, and at the end of that whole process, Noah waits for the destruction on the earth to take its toll, and then sends a raven out to see if the waters have subsided, and raven comes back, With a plucked olive and the he sends out the creation, and that's where the new creation in that terms start. It's a picture of the new creation of Jesus sent into a world that is decaying, that is under the power of death. Sin is present in the world. There's all kind of darkness, all kinds of evil. Christ is sent to rescue us from the power of sin and bring us into a new creation. So when it says he is the firstborn over all creation, the new has come. Isaiah prophesied this in uh, Isaiah 65, before Christ had even came said, behold, I create, this was the message that God gave Isaiah, was behold, I create the new heavens and the new earth. That means the new skies and the new land. And that begins with, if you and I were to create, we're in the position of God, which thankfully we're not ever. But if you and I were in that position and you were like, all right, got to start a new work, got to do away with the rest of this just like totally like uh, eliminate it and start a whole new work over. God in his mercy preserves the old so that some would come to salvation. It actually says in the scriptures that his desire for everyone is that all would come to salvation. He preserves the old while starting the new. And so Isaiah is prophesying about the new heavens and the new earth before Christ ever came to the earth in our understanding of time, not to get too philosophical and deep with you, but he says, behold, behold, I create the new heavens and the new earth. When Christ comes, he is this representation of the firstborn over all creation. He starts a new race of people, a new humanity. We were all from the lineage of Adam. He is now the last Adam. That was what it means for him to be the beginning of all creation. That is wild. Like I said, our view of Jesus from just this individual uh, God that rescues us individually from the power of sin. Although that is true, we have to get liberated from an individualistic understanding of all of the gospel. And we have to see this for what it really is. He is the firstborn over all creation. One day God will come and judge the rest of the old and will do away with that. But in the meantime, he is preserving it because he doesn't wish that any should perish. Really wild stuff. Another thing to note about this is that in his mercy, in the father's mercy, he begins the new creation in us instead of around us. Uh, So he's no longer attempting. He tried this with the kings. He's no longer trying to attempt to like set up a kingdom on the outside in the physical world. When when the Bible talks about he's doing a new thing, that's not like a license for me to just hijack what the Bible says about a new thing as my own vision for whatever I want to do. When the Bible talks about a new thing, like Isaiah 43, behold, a new thing I do, it springs up before you. That new thing is that God is doing away with the old covenant, which is set up the kingdom, try to set up the kingdom of heaven around us in the physical. He's doing away with that old thing. He's starting a new thing where the kingdom of heaven now begins within us. And that's how, like rivers of flowing, like rivers of life flowing from us, it makes its way into the physical world. But it doesn't start in the physical world. Are you following? Yeah. Okay, Jesus. Um, some of the Pharisees really didn't understand this, got this really wrong, as with a lot of other things, but they came to him in Luke 17, and they, they were basically like, hey, you're claiming to be this guy who's bringing the kingdom of heaven. How will we know it's actually the kingdom of heaven? What what sign will we see to know that this is authenticated as the kingdom of heaven, the Messiah to come? And he said, don't pay attention to anybody that says see there or see there or look over there. Don't pay attention to any of those things. The kingdom of heaven is within you. And that was his response. And they're like, What? they didn't that just didn't line up with their mental uh, expectation of what the kingdom would be the kingdom in their eyes would be that there would be this ruler this messiah this anointed one sent from god who would come to the earth and he would deal with the romans and every other oppressive government around them in the physical and christ came and he didn't even do that he actually submitted to those governments unto death and began the kingdom of heaven in us This is why in Colossians 127, it says to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when it says he is the beginning of the creation of God, he is the firstborn among all of us, among many brethren is how that's talked about. And it starts within us, not around us. That is far more costly. It's kind of easy to give your allegiance to something in the physical realm from afar. It's far more confronting. It's far more costly for it to get in here. Then we really get to see if it's actually authentic, if it's true, or if it's just lip service. This is why the Pharisees, Jesus came and rebuked them. It's because it was lip service. They were looking for it in the physical world. He was trying to create it in them. Why would he try to create it in them? Not because he was trying to come up with a good method, but because he is love and he wants to be with us. It's just the most beautiful thing. So I'm going to talk about it for the rest of my life. He says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Mm. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. I've said this just about every week. And I think I need to keep repeating this, that one of the misunderstandings, one of the biggest misunderstandings I've ever had about Jesus was that he only told me nice things or things pleasant to hear. I mean, that's just not pleasant to hear. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Um, back then in this little area of, or most of the areas um, most of the, the ancient Near East and um, most of Asia, basically the way that they would get water is through what's called like aqueducts or hot springs. And so there would be one like central part that would serve like a big area and they would use things like geography so that water would go down like mountains and this, that, and the other. And it would actually get to the city and then people would draw the water from whatever, wherever the spring was and then they would use it. Um, Laodicea didn't have a hot spring. And so by the time the water would get there, most of the time it was lukewarm and it kept on getting they kept on trying to like create like programs to get some kind of like hot spring there so that it could have these this water. And so when Jesus is talking about like lukewarm water, what we have to understand before we like get into the revelation of it, the actual spiritual revelation of it, is that there was a purpose for hot water. Back then it was used for like therapy and maybe it still is today, but therapy and like healing. So they had a huge purpose for hot water, and they had a huge purpose for cold water, obviously, to be refreshed. But lukewarm water was good for nothing. They would literally, you take a, I mean, you probably do this now. Some of y'all are weird, and you like lukewarm water. But, like, if you are trying to be refreshed, and you drink, and you're expecting, like, cold water, it's, like, almost even tempting to, like, spit out the lukewarm water. I'm kind of weird, too, now that I think about it. I drink lukewarm water all the time, but... Um, So he's not so much like rebuking, uh, like, hey, just make a decision as much as he's rebuking their state of faith, that their state of their faith has become basically good for nothing, that they profess to follow Jesus, but it's not useful for anything. It's neither hot nor cold. It doesn't provide any benefit to other, anybody around them. And in that, he's absolutely rebuking and uh, getting at their indifference or their lack of action. But it's important that we understand that there's a purpose to both of them, both sides of the cold and the hot water. Um, in the Gospels, specifically, Jesus was like particularly harsh with people whose faith and actions didn't line up. He was, I mean... Like when I say particularly harsh, he said things like, therefore, do whatever they tell you to observe, the Pharisees. Do that, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. He goes on to say that they make proselytes, that means converts, but they make them converts of hell twice as much as themselves. It's intense. Uh, in Matthew seven twenty one, you guys remember this from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father in heaven, the will of my Father in heaven. James, one of the apostles and a brother of Jesus, took it further in all of this faith and works, like misunderstanding sometimes. And he's talking about, basically, he starts like subtweeting and quoting people. who's like, I'm just going to show you my faith and that's all I need, brother. And he's like, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And he says a few other things in James 2 where he essentially is saying there's no such thing as divorcing your faith from your works. True faith has works. True works have faith. It's just that simple. It really isn't like that hard to. Grasp when we get out from whatever spiritual cloud we might be living in, it's like imaginary cloud we might be living in, and we just ground it. It's like Jesus absolutely, I mean, as, as spiritual as it gets and as practical as it gets. That's why he's the best teacher ever. So when he's talking about, again, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. One of the things... I want to speak to here is um, sometimes we just kind of like get in our head. Um, I think the Holy Spirit's been speaking into this and been training us in righteousness in this area for for quite some time. And I hope he continues to, and I hope we continue to submit to it. But sometimes when we get in our our head about things, we make everything uh, this or that kind of way. And so it's either God's doing work in me, or I have to do things out there for him. And that's like a very immature way of thinking. And the Spirit wants to like, mature us, renew our minds in the truth, that it is both of those together. And there's no need to divorce those two ever. It's like, yes, God has to do and wants to do and needs to do a phenomenal work in you. Like we talked about for the first 10 minutes of this message. And he also expects and wants and desires that work to come out of you. And there's no this or that. We get into like some really big um, Like trouble, not trouble as in like we're like getting punished, but we get into like we get paralyzed basically by, by coming under a way of thinking that isn't like the kingdom where we're trying to think this or that. And it's both. We need both of them. He goes on to say, Because you say I'm rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If Jesus is telling us that we are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked, it's probably a good thing. You know, have you ever considered that? Like if he just says it, it's good. So it's like, that sounds so mean, but it's good. It's like my heart, my flesh can kind of like buck up at something like that, where it's like, he called me wretched. And then I start to try to create like fancy theology or fancy ways of thinking about being wretched. It's like, no, I'm just honestly wretched. I was like, I'm really poor too, like in a lot of need. And it's good to not try to like get your mind around it in a crazy place. I really do believe when our hearts are tender towards or aware of, the biblical word tenderness is more about being aware of or sensitive to than it is like about this like personality of tenderness. But when our hearts are tender towards our neediness, I think we're living more in the truth than ever before. Like when my heart is tender towards the fact that I am in Like absolute, utter dependency and need on God, which at first you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I'm there, brother. I'm good. Got that. I'm in need. It's like, do we really believe or is there like without any like self deprecation, you know, like without it, I'm not talking about like hate yourself enough to be needy. That's not the kind of neediness we're talking about. We're talking about childlike neediness. Yeah. So when Pierce walks around and tells me he needs things, there's nothing going on in his mind of like, I'm such a piece of crap, why can't I find my excavator? Dad, I need you. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not what's going on. He's just like, immediately, Dad, excavator or whatever, you know, the command is that he's, that's coming out, and whatever the thing is that he needs, that has no, like, real rational thought, like, attached to it, it's just he's needy, because he hasn't learned, he hasn't been robbed of that innocence yet, to, like, understand that that's just how it is, it's good, you just need dad, I am, you are, we are a million times more needy before the father, Like, however, this is part of the reason, many reasons why like children, caring for children, whether it's your own children or other children, is so good and sanctifying for your soul is because it just reminds you in some way, shape or form of the truth that you and I are just needy. And it's just wonderful to submit to it instead of trying to theologically understand it, even or like biblically understand your neediness It's like, well, how does he call me wretched? And I'm also the righteousness of God. Hmm. It's like, I don't know. Both are true. It's awesome. My neediness to the Father, again, far exceeds my children's. Um, I really don't also believe, um, I don't think that there is a higher place, maybe not a higher place of deception than to think that I'm like sufficient in and of myself. For really anything. (laughs) Literally anything. Like that I am sufficient. The way Paul talks about his like ability is that I am weak. Your grace is sufficient for me, Lord. This is, uh, again, possible to take hold of this heart, this posture without an ounce or a trace of self-deprecation and self-hatred. We're not talking about like fleshly forcing your way into like, I just never get it right, brother. I'm a piece of crap. I'm wretched. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I have a dad who cares for me and I unashamedly ask him for help. I ask him for more of the gift of the Holy Spirit because I need it and I cannot, I cannot, I cannot function without it. I ask him for more of the fruits of his spirit because I cannot create them in my own discipline. This is what it means to be needy. It's beautiful. It's a restful yoke that requires and creates a lot of action. Um, this also is the Lord's heart behind hospitality. So like, Hospitality isn't like a human invented like uh, thing that like gives you power. The hospitality is essentially like extending to other people what he extends to you. Like safety, provision, sustenance, warmth, the rest, value, care, service. And so this like the early church, the two things that they were like physically tasked to do the most, to remember the most is to be hospitable and remember the poor. And a lot of times those things came one in with each other. And hospitality, again, wasn't like it wasn't centered around showing off how beautiful your home was. That's cool and all. But it wasn't. A, that's like the worldly way of hospitality. The biblical way of hospitality is about remembering your state before the Lord and practicing that towards others, especially those who are in deep need. Uh, Hebrews thirteen two. this is when I read this the first time and like, I guess probably not the first time, probably the first time I became like aware of like, what the heck? I was just like, wow. That's a, I wonder how many times that's happened in my life. Hebrews 13, 12, two, it says, do not forget to entertain strangers. The way that strangers can be translated is like uh, people in need uh, or people who are, are vulnerable. So like homeless, uh, displaced people. Do not forget to entertain strangers for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. I'm like, What? And I just felt like the Holy Spirit was like showing me. um, This was like a couple of years ago. And I I felt like the Holy Spirit reminded me of like so many of the teachings of Jesus. But specifically where he talks about like, I was naked. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. Like his, his teaching around like the encouragement to like live in that, to live alive to that. And to not be like an inauthentic disciple, basically. And, you know... I started to like think about how many times I've like interacted with, let's say, like a homeless person. And really, I wasn't interacting with a homeless person. I know this could sound crazy and weird, but everything we talk about is weird when you think about it. Like, I started to think about like everything we as a church talk about is just weird. We believe it, I, yeah. Um, I started to think about how many times I've just been interacting with angels. And then I like start to like study the Bible, and over the years, I realized like one of the fundamental things about angels is the word angel, angelos, literally means messenger. And so I think of, and you probably think of angels, this is, we could get way off on this, and we'll do like a whole couple of weeks talking about the spiritual realm sometime or another. But in its simplest form, an angel means messenger. And so an angel in the scripture comes with a message. And what would that message be for me you know, you think, oh, I'm going to go help some like homeless people. You know, I've got like, you know, I'm, I'm such a good helper, which, you know, do that. That's awesome. That's great. Very much a command. But the reason the Lord in his wisdom, I believe, gave us that command was not so that we can go affect change primarily in the community. It's so that you and I would remember your state before the Lord. I really do believe with all of my heart that the times when I've like in seasons of my life grown to like think that that's not actually my state before the Lord. Like no, n- nothing in the bank account, nothing really going for me. Some kind of like, I just need help from every direction. When I start to think that that's not my state before the Lord, I like really am growing out of child likeness and into self-righteousness. And again, we're not talking about dependency that is like, uh, this like again self-deprecating hateful dependency we're talking about the dependency of a child which again by, i mean jesus told us to make ourselves like children to literally force yourself to become like a child again um I want to read it one more time just what I had written down about hospitality because I and we like I mean this is one of the things our house does so well our family does so well is we practice this so well but it's important to keep like the the fire burning behind it like what actually it's about hospitality is extending to others what he extends to you to name a few things safety provision sustenance warmth rest value care service in the early church it wasn't uncommon for people to not have a place to live Like in our day and age, that's a very, uh, to some degree, uncommon thing. In that day and age, it's not like it wasn't totally a guarantee that you would have a place to live. And so you would travel a lot. You would go from town to town. And it was the church's responsibility, according to Jesus, to take care of those people. Why? Because God had shown them that mercy. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. We'll get to this in a moment, by the way. But we're like living in the father's house. Like he's brought us back into his house. It's just amazing. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and to anoint your eyes <clears throat> with eye salve that you may see. So um, this is totally drawing on Isaiah 55 and a bunch of other like wonderful prophecies about this new covenant that we would step into. And I just want to quickly hit on three things that Jesus is counseling us, advising us, that could mean also encouraging us to, to take hold of. But I, I, before we do, I just want you to notice he's like the action and the onus is on us as it usually is in the yeah. gospel. As he makes his heart known, the action is on us. He waits to be gracious to us. He waits for us to take hold of what he is offering us. And sometimes that requires like the effort of, I just think about the disciples all the time. If they lived in some of the like, and some of you, maybe you don't live in this. You're so innocent and naive in the faith. Just forget about everything I'm saying right now. But I know a lot of us live in this where the disciples were so naive to any, and they didn't have any kind of like paradigms of like spiritual, like I'm the righteousness of God and everything's by faith. He's telling me to go get a donkey from the town. Does that mean I have to work to go get that donkey? It's like, there was no, there was no, they, Jesus said, go get a donkey. So it was just go get a donkey. Yeah. There was just nothing hindering their understanding of like, just doing what Jesus said. Yeah. It was like, well, I thought I was saved by grace alone and not by works. And now I'm being told to go do these things and get this basket of, you know, bread and this fish. And he's telling me to pick up the leftovers. Like, what about, what about rest? And it's like, they just didn't have any of that kind of way of thinking. And I think it would be good for us to continue to take hold of this childlikeness. This obedience, this heart that wants to obey Jesus at any point, because there's beautiful promises like these. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Um, biblically, that gold, uh, obviously back then gold represented wealth and that wealth in the Bible is faith. Uh, Peter talks about it. There'll be some scripture up if you want to come back to it later. But Peter talks about it in first Peter two. He talks about how your faith is more precious than gold. And that sounds like, that's like tweetable, you know? But like, just take a second, or x It's X now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do they still say tweetable? They still say it, okay. Um, but this wealth, it like landed with like four people. Everybody else is like, that's just weird. I don't know what's going on. It's okay. Um, but this, <laughs> this wealth, Like, biblically speaking, this wealth is gold. But I want you to just, like, take a second and really consider what Peter says. Your faith is more precious than gold, which perishes. What is your faith? You're, like, just heart trust between the Lord, you and the Lord. That's more precious. Take whatever amount you have in your bank account, large or not big or whatever, and just, like, consider for a moment. And Jesus is just counseling us and taking hold of the real thing even more. Like, I counsel for you to come by for me gold refined by fire in other words the true wealth faith so i take hold of faith it's something i need jesus talks about you know how we're not to put our trust in riches and all of these different things but faith is like this currency that we live in the faith by it's just impossible to walk following jesus without trust the word faith pistis, like it's very much been robbed of its meaning It literally means to trust, to have full reliance. And sometimes when we talk about faith, we think about a set of ideas. And that's not what faith means. Faith is a relational thing. It's deep reliance on another. Again, back to childlikeness. it's deep reliance on your father. It's like, I don't know where my excavator is. I'm annoyed by that. Dad, help. It's trust. Never thought I'd work an excavator into a message, but here we are. Yeah, Pierce one day will be so proud of this. He counsels us to buy gold refined in fire and then white garments that you may be clothed. Um, <laughs> these white garments, I told a really bad joke about this, and I'm not going to say it right now because it was terrible earlier this week. Um, but these white garments, when the Bible talks about putting on our new nature, this is one of the things, you know, I certainly in my like relationship with the Lord, got so uh off in so many different ways and have watched a lot of people make like again a spiritual mess of this and they get really like up in their head about like ideas, spiritual ideas, and they don't actually like put on the clothes, so to speak. And so the simplest way to describe our new nature is I was dead in sin before knowing Jesus. My nature like was like a, a shirt that I was wearing. It had like it, it, it had like a stink to it. Basically, it was garments that were defiled. And it was like the way that I operated was under sin. Everything that came out of me was evil. It was selfish. It was prideful. It was sinful at its core because I had been contaminated or I had been brought under the power of sin, influenced by the power of sin. The principle of being influenced is the same thing as like being influenced by alcohol. So I was like influenced to the point where I was acting like a different person like who I wasn't created to be. I was created in the image of God. I was influenced by sin and I acted like who I wasn't supposed to be. That's likened to like a garment, an old garment that I had on. When I confessed Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he came to forgive me of that sin and my participation in that sin to rescue me from death. I gave my life to Jesus, was baptized in water. When I came above that water, according to Romans, I was given a new nature. I was once dead to God, I'm now alive to God. That means I'm responsive to God. And it is likened to, and I love how simple this is, is, it's likened to putting on a new piece of clothing. This righteousness I put on is not the righteousness that I create through discipline. It is literally a robe, a white robe, so to speak, of righteousness that I humbly submit to and put on. And that's how I use it. Imagine like getting a gift of clothing and not putting it on. It's like, This heart posture of receiving requires like some effort, some humility, some like, okay, I'm just going to put that on. And this is how beautiful the new nature is. It's like you go read Colossians 3. I put off anger, malice, lust, all of these old. The Bible is so helpful. The scripture is so helpful in helping us understand what is the old. It's so clear. It's so simple. And now I put on the new. And so this new garments I put on every day, every moment. And it's this wonderful, beautiful absolutely celebratory, joyful thing. It's not like got to put on new garments. Jeez, it's like I'm putting on something new every day. That is a reward that I did not earn. It was righteousness that was given to me. It's the greatest gift ever. And so I put on a new nature Um, again, Romans five and six, really all of Romans. But Colossians three talk about this. And Jesus is first encouraging us to buy true wealth from him faith Which is available to anybody who is thirsty. True clothing, because we are in need, naked, which is our new nature. And then he says to anoint your eyes with eye self. As we talked about last week, this anointing is the bridge between heaven and earth. Uh, According to the scriptures, this is the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But but as it's written, eye hasn't seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed them, those things to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things. Yes. The deep things of God for what man knows the things of a man, except the spirit of the man, which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God, except the spirit of God. Now we have received not worked for, but received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, that's the fleshly man. This is how like, I don't know if you've ever been in a season of life or a teaching or an environment where you're trying to mentally understand the work of God and you're trying to mentally understand, maybe even right now, like everything I'm saying, you're trying to like connect all the dots. I just encourage you don't. It's like the natural man cannot. There's a place for our mind to be renewed by the truth, but our mind doesn't apprehend the truth. Our spirit is the only thing that can really receive the truth. It's like most of the time, I don't even know what the heck that even means. I just know that's just true. It's like the deepest part of who I am yielding to God. These things we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit, of God for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned but he who is spiritual judges judges all things yet he himself is rightly judged by no one later on in that same letter in first Corinthians 12 Paul talks about how I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus a curse and that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit Jesus has a in line with this like site this uh, sight that's given to us by the holy spirit that the only way i can see christ in his kingdom is through the holy spirit jesus has this interaction with peter um, where he asked peter a question like who do you say that i am and peter's response is that you're the christ you're the messiah and jesus answered and said to him blessed are you simon bar jonah this is in matthew 16 he said blessed are you simon bar jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven um, and it's super important that Jesus didn't call him Peter in that moment. He called him Simon Barjona. Simon literally means to hear. Barjona means dove. So he said, blessed are you one who hears the dove for flesh and blood has not received revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I just this is and then it goes on to say on you, I'm going to build my church on this confession. I'm going to build my church. And I just So many times I start to drift, maybe I start to kind of like uh, walk into this way. The more I like walk in, maybe some uh, understanding some theology, there's a time and a place for that. Paul or Peter encourages us to add to our faith these things that are like edifying. It's good, it's fine but I can easily get to this place where I start to get like puffed up in my flesh and I don't remember that at its core, I am to become so needy. And the only way that I can hear and see God is through that thirst, through that childlike thirst where I've got to hear the dove, the Holy Spirit. Um, By the way, a heart posture of receiving requires quite a bit. I, I have to recognize my lack and then I have to go to someone who can do something about that lack. That is just the soul work in and of itself. Like first pride being removed from my life and recognizing that I have lack. Like Jesus, when he's saying, like you're saying you're rich, you don't need anything, you're miserable, you're poor, you're naked. You need a lot of things. He's just trying to tell them in love. He's trying to tell them you need a lot of things. I can do something about that. You just have to recognize and live in constant recognition of your need like a child. So important. I know I've said this a few times, but it's so important because this can get easily hijacked into this like self-deprecation, self-hatred. And I just have to I'm never going to get it right anyway. So whatever. And it's not what it, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you're a child. You're a child. You're a son or daughter of God. And you are in a, an abundant amount of need. In order to receive something, I have to recognize my lack. This is good for Americans, too, because we think we have a lot of things. You know, or we think we don't need a lot of things because we have words for diagnoses now and we have hospitals and we have ways to make a lot of money and we have all of these different things, which there is not necessarily something inherently bad about using our brain to flourish as humans. There's not something evil about that, but it can be used for evil purposes to the most evil purpose, which is to cut off our dependency on God. He goes on to say, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Um, Got a piece of ice there. Almost choked on it. We're going to talk about the, um, sometime soon, and soon, who the heck knows what soon means, but sometime soon, we're going to talk about the Lord's heart for families in the earth, like blood families. Um, and his heart for what it looks like to be a family that, uh, witnesses to the kingdom of heaven, um, both individually in our homes and also as a family of God in the earth. Um, and so I want to talk just a moment here about the father and his house, because it's so important to understanding his rebuke and his chastening, um, Before I do, I just like if if you ever like respond to or if there's ever these times where like you respond to his correction, however it comes, whether it's like through the word, maybe you read something and it's like, man, that's really calling me out, you know, or it's like a leader, a shepherd in your life that he has sent. You know, we don't just, by the way, call anybody a pastor and a shepherd. That's a very like humble thing to submit to, because what we're saying when somebody's a shepherd or a pastor is that they've been sent from God to man. To care for them the way God cares for them. That's, you know, both scary and there's honor due to that. So maybe a shepherd brings something to your attention. A spiritual authority, you are know, like brings something to attention. It's like, hey, you know, I've noticed you're, uh, I don't know, you talk like in a way that isn't really the most like uh, healthy. It's not in line with how the Lord encourages us to talk. There's a lot of sarcasm and like crude joking along with it. Like I think you should think about maybe uh, like putting that away if we respond to however correction comes into our life, if our heart responds to it in this kind of way, we're like, gosh, another thing? Or like there's this like, There's this like heaviness to it. I just want to. I just want you to know that 100 times out of 100, if that's the way we respond to correction, there's a there's an invitation from the Holy Spirit to step out of fear and into faith. And what I mean by that is there's nothing to fear in correction. There's no like nobody's evaluating you. And if they are, it's okay if they are because the Father's not. His correction isn't around making you a better person. He's not like interested in making you a better person. He's interested in conforming you to the image of his son. And so when he, if you say you love Jesus, how many of you guys say you love Jesus? Okay. Amen. If you say you love him, what you're signing up for is correction because I don't know about you, but I have many ways where I can be conformed into the image of Jesus to a greater depth. Yeah. And so his correction comes in a way that conforms us to Jesus. This is why if we bring corrections to somebody, it's not your opinion. It's what the word kind of lends itself to as like something that, and when the word's talking about it, it's about being conformed to the image of Jesus. Um, In like ancient near Eastern uh, cultures, in the Hebrew culture, uh, this is so important to get when we, when it comes to the father's work, um, in these like patriarchal like societies it's what could be called a patriarchal society you would have a father who is let's say like a fisherman Okay, that was his business. That was his dad's business, his dad's dad's business, and so on and so forth. And in a patriarchal society, there wasn't, where there wasn't like this this uh, perverse individualistic spirit like there is today, there was nothing in people's minds that was like, that's manipulative and horrible and cunning. How could they do that to their kids? How could they not let their kids have their own way of life? It was just beautiful. It was the way that they lived life together. Is you inherited what dad did, and you worked with dad even before you inherited it. That's what you just stepped into. And I'm sure there were times when that didn't happen, but the heart behind it was not coercion and manipulation. The heart behind it was dad has worked to make a way and a living for us, and we get to help in that, and then we get to take that honor one day. It was actually freeing because you didn't have to live your whole life under the curse of selfish ambition, trying to find out what your life was for. So this is the context that the father, that Jesus talks about the father in. Jesus doesn't talk about the father like some distant guy who's running a project and he's all whipping the cord on us. No, he's our dad and he's bringing us into our inheritance. Now, when we think about inheritance, a lot of us immediately go to um, what you get to use however you want to use it. So like if I say to Pierce, I have an inheritance for you. It'll come to you when I pass away or, you know, whatever. And a lot of us are like, yeah, that makes sense. I get amount of money or property or whatever it is. And I use that inheritance however I want to use it. And that's a blessing. And that is kind of cool and all that kind of stuff. And there's part of that understanding in the biblical inheritance. But a biblical inheritance, when we think of inheritance biblically, it is what you step into stewarding. It is what you step into participating in. It is what you step into continuing. And so it's like implied that our inheritance is Jesus and his kingdom is not something that we inherit so that we could just use for our own purposes. It's something that we step into with the father, participating in, stewarding, taking care of it, continuing the work of it. And that's a joy. Um, do you guys remember when Jesus in Luke 2 gets lost? Remember that? You're like, no, what? What happened? He was a kid. He got lost and his mom and dad and they go try to find him and he, he like re- responds back to him. and He's just like, oh, why are you like looking for me? Don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? He l- literally uses the language of like my father has a business, a project, and I am about that. And so when I say I'm a follower of Jesus, part of what I'm saying is that I've been brought into this relationship with the father that absolutely he comforts me, cares for me, walks with me like just I mean, cares for me more than I can put into English words. He loves me deeper. He sings over me. I mean, he watches me as I sleep the same way that I would watch my son and my daughter as they sleep. And he has like affection for me. He's slow to anger. He is forgiving. He is like the father in Luke 15, running to me. He is full of passion, full of fire. And he has a business that I've been brought into. And that business is redemption. That business is redeeming all of mankind back to him. And so we, we really, when we, when we like start to shrink back from correction, when we start to shut our ha- heart from correction, what, what usually is driving that is a misunderstanding of what you've been brought into. You've been brought into like an inheritance, which is amazing. And that inheritance is not in a lump sum of money that you use on whatever you want to use. You know, when Israel was given an inheritance, they were given the land of Canaan and there were still enemies in the land. Why is that important? Because they weren't given an inheritance that was perfect. They were given an inheritance that required a lot of work. It required a lot of dying to yourself, a lot of like, what are we going to do now? There's another nation that wants to kill us. And so your inheritance is Christ and his kingdom and all the promises of God. And they find their yes and amen in him. But this like understanding of the father has to really, really get centered in our hearts. The spirit, I believe, arrests the influence of individualism by bringing us back into the Father's house. Not by you like feeling bad about having personal dreams and desires. Like if you walk away from like uh, the word or the talks like around the word in this area where you're like, I guess I, I, I'm not supposed to have selfish ambitions, so I'm never supposed to do anything for myself again. Now I'm paralyzed. What do I do? Do I just do nothing? Do I just give away all my money? Like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Just don't, just relax. Remember that you have a father who has a work to do and start asking him how he wants you to play a part in it. You know, in some of our house churches that you guys have been like getting around, I think some of these questions about like, what has God called you to and how have you been doing that? What work has God called you to and how has he, how, how have you been doing that? It's so important as we consider that, that we understand that the work that he's called us to is not like work for you to kind of have a better life its work around the kingdom of heaven and this understanding of stepping into it more is a very exciting, really adventurous one. Um, Romans 8.29 talks about how we're being conformed into the image of Jesus. And I just, I think it's important to reiterate the father's correction by whatever means is not aimless. And it's not about maximizing your life. You know? It's about conforming you. That word conform literally means to bend back into to revert back into, like the picture is being bent over, that's unconformed, that's broken by sin. Him conforming us into the image of Jesus is Him bending us back. And sometimes that comes with resistance. It doesn't feel the greatest, like Hebrews 12 talks about. But bending us back into how we were designed to be, which is the image of Jesus. Um, We'll get back to, let me just read this again. I know it's kind of repeat, but I want to read this again because I feel like the Spirit's on it. In the Ancient Near Eastern patriarchal societies, most fathers had some sort of business and you simply inherited it. That is sons. That's why biblically we as a church are called his son and we are also called his bride. No matter what your gender is, you're his son. You're also his bride because there's an understanding. There's a revelation there that comes with that. In ancient Near Eastern patriarchal societies, most fathers had some sort of business and you simply inherited it. It was a blessing end because of the individualistic spirit did not have it because the individualistic spirit did not have its grip on that society. It wasn't seen as forceful. So this is the right frame of mind to consider how we are to be about our father's business like Jesus was or to consider what works he has prepared for us. And if we are doing them or being faithful to them, the absence of faithful fathers combined with the influence of the demonic realm in this world gives way to an individualistic society that tarnishes our understanding of how to relate to our Father and His work that He has invited us into, and that is our inheritance. When we think of an inheritance, we often think of what we will get. Biblical inheritance is what you step into stewarding, participating in, and continuing. Israel inherited a land with enemies in it, and we inherit a kingdom of heaven with work to be done. Later on in this letter, uh, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and dine with him <laughs> and he with me. To him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is like the glory of the new covenant and what makes Jesus, uh, there's no other way to say it besides awesome. I mean, he's just amazing. He wants after all of it, and through all of it and in the midst of all of it, he wants fellowship. So he's like, you know, you're poor, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're lukewarm, and I'm gonna need to spit you out if you continue to be that way, I'd rather you be hot or cold. And you know, I'm coming to your door and I want to dine with you. And if you'll hear my voice, when I was reading this earlier this morning in this week, like what really was standing out to me, and I feel like the spirit was like highlighting it specifically for this time, is he says, if anyone hears my voice, not like, I mean, that just, that's so unbelievably disarming. If anyone will hear my voice, like right now, if anyone hears his voice, he's standing at the door knocking, wanting to come in and dine with you. Um, the reason I think that that like sticks out so much at this current moment is because there is so much in our lives. How many of you guys have been following Jesus for over five years? Raise your hand. Raise them high, come on! That was like sheepish. All right, you're not in trouble. Um, I don't think. Um, <laughs> I don't have the authority to tell you you're in trouble or not. But I hope you're not in trouble. Um, <laughs> there's there's this like uh, there's this tendency when when we when we start to follow Jesus for some time. Again, taught to most of the people in the room that have been following Jesus for five plus years. You kind of get into your rhythms. You know, you get married, have kids, do your thing, got the job you want, and all that kind of stuff. You get into your rhythms and then before you know it, you look back on three, four, five years of life and you haven't made any space for the Lord. And it like sounds like, whoa, like no way. It's like, no, that happens. That certainly happens. And then you start to like, Uh, go from there you start to kind of question your faith and it just leads to this really weird in the same way that if a husband and a wife didn't value time together and didn't make space for one another and they were just full send, go into their busy schedule every single week, all maybe even good things. They'd be like just full send, go. They don't sit down. They don't reset. They don't have a date night. They don't have times where it's just them, especially when the kids come. Before you know it, you look back. This has happened to some of your parents. This has happened to some of the people that you know. Before they look back, there's been 20 years and they don't know their spouse anymore. And then it leads to a marriage falling apart or even worse in the midst of it. And this marriage that we have with the Lord is the same way that we can be so diligent, even in the things of God, even in the things of uh, righteousness, in the good ways of living, in the ways of Jesus, we can be so diligent in all of that. And I'm not saying this is easy. I mean, especially you got to start having kids and they, you know, need something literally every hour of the day. And then you got your job on top of that. And then you are trying to be a witness to the Lord and be a good disciple. And you're trying to live in the community of believers. I mean, I'm not saying there's not a lot of things going on. But what I'm saying is he deserves my time. He is worthy of my time. And I I, I like. So what does that mean in our lives? I don't know. It's like if my kids are getting up at this time, I'm getting up an hour earlier. If I have X, Y, and Z going on in my life, I'm going to fight to find time. I'm going to physically make space for him. And I think if we love him, we will. So it's not like if you hear that as forceful, I would just encourage you. I would lovingly question in a, the most kind hearted way whether or not you love him. It's like, I got to make time for him. It's like, it like brings joy to my whole being when I like, have to relearn a rhythm, you know, it's like, oh, Pierce is sleeping until this time now, pivot, because I need to make time for me and the Lord, or I, you know, I'm doing this in the middle of the day now. So I'm going to make time for the Lord, you know, and it's not just this little time in the morning, the secret place. It's like more even than that. It's about my heart being open and available unto the Lord putting everything on the altar in every single season of life i've watched so many of you guys do this so well you put everything on the altar jay katie so many others you do this so well where you it's like every single week every single month every single new season of life it's like this is back on the altar lord tell me how you want me to steward this because you're what matters most in my life and sometimes there's like no change you know to the physical part of your life and sometimes it's like reorients everything and it's i think that's exciting But if you're not careful, you get four, five, six years into following Jesus and you get kind of good at the rhythms. You learn the language, you learn the things to do. And then you look back, you will, I promise if you don't heed this warning, you will look back and you'll be like, my gosh, some of you in this moment are realizing this as I talk about this, that you look back and it's like, I haven't made space for him. I know how to do the Christian thing. I know how to walk this out in the physical, but I haven't made any space from him. My heart is dead towards him. My heart is dry towards him. He wants to come in and dine with you. That's just amazing.